Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. first episode of Tuning In, I spoke with Handel and Haydn artistic director Harry Christophers about Bach's St. Matthew Passion. The conversation covered several topics, and at one point Harry spoke about arias in the work that feature an instrument called the viola da gamba in an elevated role as solo accompaniment to the singer. Some questions have come in regarding this instrument, and as the Handel and Haydn Society specializes in the performance of music on period instruments, it seemed to me to make sense that I should begin a series on the nature of the instruments that we play and inaugurate it with the discussion of the viola da gamba. H&H is fortunate to have Shirley Hunt as both a cellist and a gambist in our group. Shirley is active on both instruments in ensembles across the country, including Philharmonia Baroque, American Bach soloists, Tenet, and Trinity Baroque. She is represented as soloist and chamber player on numerous CD recordings, which can be found, along with more information about her, on her website, shirleyhunt.net. Shirley, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Guy. It's such a pleasure. So, Shirley, there is some confusion about the relationship between the cello and the viola da gamba. And this is not helped at all by the fact that multifaceted players such as yourself play equally well in both, right? (laughs) (laughs) But before we get to that, I'd like to ask you a bit about your history with the instruments, if you will permit me. Which came first for you? Which was the instrument with which you started? I started on the cello. So um, as a kid, I actually played a lot of different instruments. I played piano. I played cello. I also studied organ, believe it or not. I I took classes in electronic music production and songwriting. Wow. (laughs) So I started the cello at age nine. And eventually when I got to college, I started developing an interest in early music and period instruments. And I think I was 19 when I first started studying viola da gamba in earnest with private lessons and all of that. And similarly for the Baroque cello, I started both of those around the same time in tandem with my modern cello studies at college. And coming back to the viola da gamba, could you give us a basic history of the instrument? And then I'd love to know how it is similar or different from the cello. You know, ultimately we share a range and a posture, but any other areas where we are the same or different? So the viola da gamba has its origins in Europe in the late 15th century, specifically in Spain, in a region that was called the Kingdom of Aragon. The instrument really is a very hybrid type of instrument. Its origins come both from a North African instrument called the rabab and also from a Spanish precursor to the guitar, which is called the vihuela de mano. 
And I really find it so useful to think of the gamba as a hybrid instrument. It has these qualities, right, that come from different traditions of string instrument playing. It's a bit of a, like a unicorn of an instrument. It's like a, something with wings. <laughs> with regards to the nomenclature of the instrument, viola de gamba is an Italian phrase, viola meaning a general word for a string instrument and gamba being leg. So viola de gamba literally means the instrument of the leg. And that's important because then it doesn't get confused with other instruments that have viola as part of the name, like viola de more, viola de braccio, viola pomposa, all other instruments kind of commonly known as violas. I haven't made a study of this, uh, either a musicological or uh, ethnological study, but it seems like going around the world and listening to non-Western classical violinists, you are encountering a lot of violinists also holding their instruments between their legs. So East Indian classical, East Indian, yes. uh, Bedouin violinists, other Middle Eastern violinists all hold their violins between their legs. I wonder if this is actually kind of the original, most comfortable and sensible way of holding these instruments. And the modern violin and viola being a lateral instrument are somewhat anathema to our natural instinct of how to play a stringed instrument. Well, we're going to have to take this up with our colleagues, mm. clearly. I still can't. I just don't understand how a violin is played. I, I hold a violin and I just <laughs> don't get how to produce a sound. I don't understand either. I'm glad I'm not alone, guys. Oh, no, certainly not. I, I, I just don't get it. Um, the culture of viola da gamba playing really flourished in the 16th century when polyphonic music was played in consort. A consort is an ensemble that consists only of viols and elite nobles in England especially played these instruments together as a family at court or in homes. And it was very common to have a specialized kind of cabinet to keep your court collection or your family collection of vials in your home. And this became known as a chest of vials. And then subsequently, simply a collection of vials meant to be played together in consort became known as a chest of vials also. So it refers both to a specialized piece of furniture, you can imagine, to store uh, six vials de gamba, typically two treble vials, two tenor vials, two bass vials, which are the typical sizes of this instrument that you would find in a consort. So one of the things about the viola da gamba that's important to know is that the instrument comes in a variety of sizes, completing a whole family of instruments, much like we think of the violin family being completed by not only the violins, but also violas, cellos, basses. So we have sort of a whole range of instruments there. Same thing with the viola da gamba. So we've got the trebles, which are about the same size as a violin tenors, which are sort of the alto range instrument. Basses, by the way, the bass size of the viol is what you would hear me play in Handel and Haydn Society, and for which most of the solo repertoire for the gamba is written. And then there are also some slightly larger gambas that are a little more obscure. A lot of attention was really brought to this instrument by this flourishing of instrument building, the writing and distribution of treatises, and the enthusiasm for this instrument that was really building in the Italian Renaissance and also in England really made its way through all the German-speaking lands, France, the Low Countries. In the 17th century, there was kind of a transition period 
where polyphonic concert music sort of fell out of fashion and the gamba as a solo instrument and as a member of a mixed chamber ensemble kind of came on the rise. Also, the gamba remained a popular choice as a continual instrument, although that began to fade when the rise of opera came and there was need for a more penetrating sound, which would come from a cello or a violin family instrument. So in the 18th century, the gamba was almost exclusively being written for as a virtuoso solo instrument. Composers who really exemplified this trend included, of course, J.S. Bach, Telemann, Carl Friedrich Abel, C.P.E. Bach, and others like Johannes Schenk, uh, Antoine Forqueray. And these composers all were really exhausting the soloistic possibilities of the instrument. So music from this period, uh, I can tell you for, uh, firsthand, is wonderful, but extremely difficult. Hmm. <laughs> and then in the 18th century, the gamba largely falls out of fashion, which sort of coincides with other cultural events like the rise of the middle class and the sort of eclipse of nobility. And then we kind of don't really hear much from or about the gamba for a while. The late 19th and early 20th century is kind of where I like to sort of put a pin in the beginning of the revival, which is very linked to the Dolmetsch family, uh, which I encourage you to sort of look into mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're interested in polymath people who help revive a lot of interest in the, you know, the playing and the making of early instruments. Well, Arnold Dolmetsch made the first violas da gamba built in america he was an american yes. born but he was right here in boston actually at the chickering factory and it happened that the new england conservatory owns these instruments they have these three gambas that is so cool beautiful instruments with his family's portraits carved into the head of the instrument historical instruments wow. right there yeah you know, there was this movie in 1998 that Jordi Saval played the soundtrack for that, you know, illustrates this very interesting teacher-student relationship between Marin Marais and his teacher, um, Monsieur de Saint-Colomb. And certainly, I think that, you know, in, in the past 25 years, the popularity of that film is responsible for a real surge in the interest in the instrument and the wider recognition of that instrument. And that film is... Le Matin de Mont. Right, which played a, a major part in my own interest in early instruments. I, I saw that right around the time where I became exposed to this and it certainly sealed the oh. deal for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that film. I love that soundtrack. It's an incredible film. I love the scene where San Colombe is playing with his two daughters. Mm. To sort of see that come to life, you know, in, in an imagined scene was, was very, very powerful for yeah. me. And it's a gorgeous movie, regardless of your musical proclivities. It's just beautiful and beautifully acted. Yes. It, every scene looks like a painting come to life. Exactly. It's gorgeous. So, Guy, you asked me about the similarities and differences between the cello and the gamba. And instead, I gave you a lecture on the history of the gamba. <laughs> I think it's an interesting one. And you know, before you get to the similarities, I love the fact that you mentioned that the dwindling popularity or dwindling usage at least of the gamba during the 18th century mirrored some social and political context as well. And it reminds me that the history of the violin, the violin family, which ostensibly gained popularity as the viola da gamba lost it yes the origins of the violin are very paltry i mean it's basically as a dance instrument from the streets the people's instrument the people's yeah. instrument 
Yes, whereas the gamba was an instrument of nobility, of refined dignity. It was an upper crust type instrument. It's so interesting. It absolutely, you know, played this role almost in the etiquette and refinement of like what a young noble should do, you know, like learn to play a classy instrument like the gamba and become familiar with all of the most refined musical sensibilities of the day. That was kind of like part of becoming a, a very cultured person in the world. <laughs> so if a nobleman or woman had to play the gamba as a refined instrument, who was it who played the cello and how are they different? Oh, interesting. Well, cellists were probably employees of court. Hmm. So they were like the working class. I see. And oh, Scrawly, um, nothing's changed there. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's a good one. One thing I don't want to forget to cover is that the gamba is not a direct ancestor of the violin. Now I feel like I'm on a TED talk, like debunking what you thought was true, you know, or something. This is something a lot of people ask me about after concerts. They say like, oh, is this the instrument that came before the cello? I feel like this is like the most common myth I have to debunk for people as a gamba player. Hmm. And not true. The viola de gamba and the cello come from two completely separate instrument families that coexisted before the viola de gamba fell out of fashion. So at this point, Shirley, let's hear a little of your playing on the gamba. Here is a bit of a movement from Johann Sebastian Bach's Sonata for Viola de Gamba and Harpsichord in G major, and you are performing on your own recording of this with harpsichordist Ian Pritchard. <laughs> This is a beautiful disc of beautiful music, wonderfully played, and you play both cello and gamba on these discs. The two instruments had something of a duel in the 18th century, and you've alluded to the popularity of one dwindling as the popularity of the other rose. Can you speak to that duel? Absolutely. 
So the viola da gamba, you know, was so treasured by a composer like Bach, who used it to paint some very special effects, often effects that relate to subtle transitions of state, like transitioning from one world into the next, or sleep, or or something like this. And the cello, which was really becoming kind of like a rival to the violin in the 18th century. And I really think of the gamba as being really used by a lot of composers in the 18th century as a kind of a throwback, as a bit of like a nostalgia effect. I think of today hearing a pop song or something that's been put through a filter where it sounds like it was recorded on an eight track or recorded on somebody's message machine from like the 1980s or something like that. I think that this kind of sensibility, which is like about texture, about effect, about placing sound in a time and place, <laughs> uh, was very like in the world and in the power of the of the viola da gamba. Whereas I think that the cello in the 18th century was really like the way forward as a member of a more commercial musical enterprise. It's interesting you should say and mention this pop song throwback and as much as Bach's Brandenburg Concerti are pop songs, it should be mentioned that the sixth one <laughs> is scored for two instruments from the violin family as soloists. These are two violas in this instance, uh, along with a cello playing the bass line on one side of the stage. And then on the other are two violas da gamba and a double bass, which really is a double bass gamba, right? I mean, we've borrowed it, but it belongs to... Yes, absolutely. It's like the 16-foot version of the gamba. Exactly. And so Bach kind of puts... He doesn't really pit them against each other. He, he really combines them, this, these two different sounds, old and new, the way forward and what things have been in a very evocative way and gives each moment to shine in this one really beautiful and, and happy but dark work. Absolutely. And I, I also would add to that, that he's using both of those instruments in an unusual way. Obviously, he's using the violist, uh, Debracha, in an unusual way because he's using uh, solo instruments as the concerto instruments. But I think his use of the gambas is also somewhat unusual because his other writing for gamba is so soloistic. Hmm. in nature. And so putting them kind of in this secondary role as part of the accompanying texture is also sort of a deviation for Bach in this context. So you've established the difference between the cello and the gamba. It seems to me like it might be easier for a double bass player to pick up the instrument rather than cellist. And the tuning and the origin of the double bass has to do with that. In studying both instruments at the same time, is there any moment necessary for adjustment to avoid confusion? Or are your instincts for both kind of separate? You know, Guy, for me, they're very separate modes, actually. I know that when I was first studying, it was quite confusing to switch back and forth between instruments. I really, for a long time, felt like I had no idea what I was doing when I, when I picked up the gamba. And I felt like it was a completely new spatial experience with my body and an instrument. But Thankfully, today, I really do actually feel like they're completely different activities. I would compare this to maybe playing two different sports with different equipment, you know, like playing basketball and playing hockey. It's music making. But for me, they really feel like two different modes of, of working. I've most often played with you as a gambist in the music of Bach. Often it's the sixth Brandenburg Concerto, which we've talked about. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when we play that work, we've also played or are about to play the entire set, which includes the third Brandenburg Concerto, which calls for three cellos. And we ask you to then switch mm -hmm. and join us in the cello section. 
significantly, you often appear with Handel and Haydn in the passions of Bach, the St. John and St. Matthew, the two surviving passions. I wondered about adjustment time because as the latter calls for two orchestras, the St. Matthew passion, right. you often play the cello in one of them, then pick up the gamba and perform one of the few numbers in which it is featured. On stage, what is that adjustment like? This is such a great question. Guy, it really is a unique challenge to double all these instruments in such a lengthy and epic work, like one of the Bach passions. I personally find this challenge very exciting, and I find that it's all about pacing myself. So on stage, I have some unique needs for doing a sort of a doubling role as an instrumentalist like this. I need a little extra space because I have a stand that my second instrument rests upon. So I need a little extra space to set that on the stage and put my viola da gamba on there and make sure that I'm not going to knock into it while I'm playing the cello and also that no one else is going to knock it over on stage. So, so I need a little extra space I also need extra time to get settled in, you know, before a performance begins, to get warmed up on both the instruments, to get tuned. I also need to communicate with any colleagues around me to make special requests like, can you turn my page here because I've got to switch from cello to gamba at that moment and I, I don't have a third arm to do a thing, so can you help me? Or I might ask someone like yourself for an extra tuning note here and there since the gamba has some open strings that aren't included in the whole sort of regular string section routine. And it should be noted that, first of all, we're using gut strings on stage, all of us, which sometimes suffer from changes in humidity and temperature. And so it's likely during a performance, strings go out of tune. And also the gamba's first appearance in the Matthew Passion is over an hour into the work. Yes. And it's just sitting there on stage. I know for me, it definitely took the repetition of several performances to sort of get past this fear hmm. <laughs> that kind of like seized me during that entire first hour. Like, oh my God, like, <laughs> but I feel that I have successfully come up with some ways to manage the tuning of the instrument. And for me, this is actually a process that it begins as soon as I arrive at the hall. For me, I want to get the instrument in the space where it's going to be as soon as I can. And I want it to stay there, there in the hall as long as possible before the performance. So that might even entail getting to the hall a couple hours even before I'm supposed to be there, <laughs> just mm. so that the instrument can really acclimate, the strings can stretch out. And that's typically a really good investment of time because I don't want the instrument to be swimming and adjusting during the rehearsal. I want it to be stable by then and then very stable by the time the performance starts because when the performance starts, I can't warm up or noodle around on my instrument anymore. It's going to sit there cold while I play cello <laughs> right. um, until it's time for me to play it. So typically what I'm able to arrange with the music director to switch instruments a little bit early so that I'm able to play several chorales, for example, on the gamba when I might typically be playing cello. And this doesn't make such a difference when the entire string section right, is, is playing the lines of the chorale along with the chorus. And for me, I've come up with sort of a method of checking all of the open strings of the gamba with notes in the bass line of the chorales. And so what I do is I circle them in my part. And so when I, when I get to a circled one, I just try to listen really hard to hear, is that E in tune? If it's not, I need to stop everything and fix it right now. Like, like literally like stop playing and, and fix that. <laughs> and it should be noted that you have three other colleagues, two cellists in the other orchestra and another one sitting next to you who are playing that same line. So you're... That's right. So it's, it's not a huge loss. What I find 
so difficult about how this sounds to pull off is that you're about to play an extremely exposed, technically challenging moment. And it's not just exposed and challenging, it's also central to the work, these arias in which the gamba is featured. And you don't have the luxury of a few numbers beforehand to start getting your own musical self in the right direction to be in the, in the space to perform these things. You're tuning the instrument literally up until the moment you have to play. And so that switch from orchestral cellist or gambist to a star that has to join the voice in carrying the message of this very central aria has to happen extremely quickly for you. It does. It does. I know that for me, this is a this is a very exciting challenge. Hmm. I get a lot of energy from it. It's it's almost like it gives me something gives me something to look forward to. I really feel that that pulling something like this off successfully really has to do with with pacing yourself. So, I tend to sort of remain a bit reserved, perhaps, with my section cello playing up until the time it's time to play gamma, because I really want to sort of you know save my keenest instincts also, you know, because I'd like to, you know, remain flexible to the expression of the singer in the moment. I do think that St. Matthew and St. John present different levels of difficulty or different types of difficulty in this regard. For St. Matthew, uh, right before Comus's Christ is a little accompanied russet and the gamba plays some kind of lovely burialage. And I always think that it's sort of a kind gesture of Bach to have put that there because it does give you a few bars to play and make any last adjustments if you absolutely have to. And for the benefit of our listeners, the word you just used, bariolage, means the very quick crossing over several strings so that notes on each one of the strings are played in succession pretty quickly. It's almost like a bouncing of the bow on the strings. That basically very, very. So, so he does give you a bit of an on-ramp <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> in, in, in that one. Whereas with St. John, oh my gosh, that one is really just out of, out of nowhere. And it is such a delicate moment. It's very exposed with the St. Matthew Passion, the kind of effortfulness of the Biola da Gamba solo in Comsis's Kreutz makes it, although it's technically quite difficult, the, the kind of like energy level is a bit easier to summon, I think, whereas the texture of the Essestful Gracht from St. John Passion, I, I find to be actually much more difficult, even though the solo itself is not as technically complex. It is so exposed. Mm. <laughs> it is very exposed. And it's also one that if your viola da gamba goes out of tune, or if you haven't righted the ship, if it has gone out of tune, it is a very, very exposed moment to have a not in tune <laughs> line that is just as important as the singer. So by box time, the viola da gamba was a bit of old news already. It was already falling out of fashion. And uh, I think as we've discussed a little bit, it was a bit of a throwback, right? So it's absolutely an instrument that he was using to signal a kind of nostalgia or a reminiscence or a memory of a kind of dignified and, and regal quality. Um, who's dignified and regal? A king. Christ is the king. Oh, hey, we're in liturgical music land. It's also an instrument that he uses, I think, to signal the ascent into heaven or sort of a transition from one state to another. And this also really comes from a tradition of, from other Baroque music where the gamba is an instrument that's associated with sleep, that's associated with like a you know transition from waking to sleeping or from life into the next life. And I think that he really maximizes the possibilities 
of an old instrument. It was really beginning to be considered obsolete by Bach's time. So I think it's very interesting that he uses it, I think, as a special effect, a bit almost like like a character actor. Every time that he uses the instrument, it's absolutely for a thoughtful purpose. Yeah, it's definitely a special moment in the drama when the instrument appears. Do you find his writing for the gamba to be sympathetic to technical difficulty? Uh, does it seem that he... <laughs> I know. Does... I know, no. right? Well, does it seem like he had a working knowledge of the instrument or is it music yes. first and let the performer deal with it? You know, I think I think it's a bit of both. I absolutely think that Bach was thinking musically first and thinking like a keyboard player. In fact, when I when I study Bach, whether it's the Passions or the Gambusnadas or any chamber music, I always try to sit down and study the score at the keyboard because I know that's sort of like the real Bach. (laughs) But what I love about how Bach writes for the gamba is he really utilizes all of the harmonic possibilities that you can explore in an instrument that is so chordal in nature. This is a feature of the gamba that's very cool that we haven't really talked about yet, that the gamba can really realize chords in a way that an instrument like the cello can't. So What's interesting about the gamba is that it can create these very densely voiced chords in a low register, which is not possible on the cello because of the tuning, right? Because the gamba has fourths and thirds. It's possible to play these chords that are like a bunch of thirds in a second or something stacked on top of each other. And in order to do that on a cello, you you can't or like you'd have to use your chin or or do something crazy <laughs> well, in order to get that many notes so densely voiced. And depending on the key, if you are, for instance, playing a D major chord on a seven string gamba, you can literally use all seven strings. All and get seven this strings. Incredible I, yeah. sound. On the cello, yep. you can't use more than four at any given time. And sometimes not even that, depending on what key you're in. Yeah. So, so he, I, I think he absolutely had a very good working knowledge of the instrument. He was certainly very close with a number of very, very fine players, including Carl Friedrich Abel's father, for whom the gamba sonatas are probably written. I really admire the Bach gamba sonatas because they are so violinistic in nature. They are so, like, I feel like it's violin music that was put into a gamba world and given some extra yummy gamba juice with it. (laughs) But the musical language in those pieces, I I think you'd agree, Guy, is so different. It's so completely different than the musical language that's used in the cello suites. Oh, absolutely. For for example, and I know for me, that's like so interesting to explore. But I also love thinking of Abel Sr. because he was the principal viola da gamba player in Bach's orchestra at Curtin. He was also a master cellist and a master violinist. So think about it. Someone who could play violin, cello, and gamba all equally well. First of all, that's amazing. It just blows my mind that people had that much talent. And um, I'm sure that, you know, without the internet and stuff, they were able to really (laughs) develop their skills at musical instruments in an incredible way. Fewer distractions back then. Yeah, I think there were fewer distractions. It was like a quarantine. No, just kidding. (laughs) There were fewer distractions back then. But I like to think of Aldo Sr. as being this really influential player of the gamba in Bach's life who took part in the kind of in, in the direction that Bach went with his writing for the instrument. So Bach is known as a keyboard instrumentalist first, uh, also played the violin and viola very well, owned a variety of instruments, some of which mm-hmm. he probably played decently, but he is not a gambist as far as we know. 
several non-Gombis composers wrote for the instrument. I'm thinking of Telemann, who I know studied the instrument. He taught himself the instrument, but is not known as a Gombis composer. And though he wrote beautiful music for it, some unaccompanied, some in chamber ensembles, mm -hmm. concerto soloist, really beautiful music for the instrument. But it's probably fair to say that the majority of the music for Gamba, at least in the 16th through the 18th century, was written by master Gambists. Are there any favorites among these for you? Yes, I absolutely love <laughs> the repertoire that's from these kind of master Gamba player composers. They give the best directions, really. They give you fingerings, they give you a lot of information, and then you trust that information because you know that person played the instrument, they knew what they were doing. In a way, a lot of these works are sort of the best teacher that there, that there is. I'm thinking in particular of music of Marin Marais, which includes in the manuscript tons of performance directions. <laughs> so notes on fingerings, all kinds of little keys to show you what different kinds of trills and symbols mean. Uh, the music is incredibly beautiful, diverse, full of character. I also love the music of Fokeray. Uh, it's fiendishly difficult, but it's so rewarding to master. And it's a totally unique musical language that's unlike anyone else's. And I, I just love playing his music, which it, some people will think means that I'm like a sick sadist <laughs> or something, but, um, but I really love it. Uh, I do love Carl Friedrich Abel's music. I think that his unaccompanied music for viol is kind of in that category of like what the Bach cello suites are to cellists. I think that Abel's unaccompanied music is very much kind of a similar similar role in the in the repertoire and I really admire those pieces. Tobias Hume is another big favorite of mine. He was a Scotsman and a soldier and his music is very lighthearted and secular in nature. He has a piece uh, called Tobacco in which the performer is supposed to sing and play gamba at the same time and his music I think of sort of being a, a whole series of vignettes from everyday life, which is a, a bit of a deviation. You know, we, we had this conversation about the gamba being associated with nobility and high class elite life. And Hume for me is kind of a breath of fresh air because it's sort of music for the people about regular, regular old folk life and regular stuff, drinking, smoking, being with your friends. That's what we all wish we were doing right now. But mm. We can. Well, well put. Listen, I'm really glad that you were able to spend some time with us and talk about the gamba. I know some of our colleagues at H and H also play the instrument, and I'd love to see an H and H presents the gamba variety show with you all. Oh, me too. That would be wonderful. Maybe I can play the lowly cello and play a bass line <laughs> with you. Uh, Shirley, thank you so, so much for your time and for your uh, breadth of knowledge and for sharing it with us. You are so welcome, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Shirley Hunt performs on period cello and viola da gamba with the Handel and Haydn Society. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our webpage at handelandhaydn.org slash podcast there you can find previous episodes and supplementary materials to this one, including biographical information, a photo of Shirley and her viola da gamba, a copy of an early method book for the instrument, and links to Shirley's website. I hope you'll join me for the next episode.